America is developing a new missile. It's based on Trident. What's the true story behind the threat to the Royal Marines and the two ships that float them off to war? The women in uniform who fought for the vote? And who's going to reign on Donald Trump's parade? It's believed the Americans are developing a long-range super-speed missile that can reach any target in the world in one hour. Its codename is CTM and it's based on the same rocket carried by Britain's Trident nuclear submarines. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been hearing about these plans. Uh, Christopher, CTM, what is it? CTM, conventional, Trident, modified. That tells you everything about it. First, conventional means it's got a conventional warhead on our nuclear warhead, right? You know, just high explosives or flechettes, which are uh, sort of, if you like, metal arrows. Uh, Trident, it's based on the missile bit of uh, the Trident submarine system. Uh, so you don't have the warhead, you have the trunk of it, and you, you beef up the engines and the guidance systems, etc. Modified, well, you've modified a Trident. So there you are. If you see any picture of a Trident submarine firing its rocket, that's basically what you're seeing, but in a modified uh, form. And why would the Americans want this kind of missile exactly? Um, it's part of a, of a developing strategy that you've got to start rethinking what sort of war you're going to be firing. You're not going to revolutionise the way war is because you've got this conventional warhead. In other words, you know, you don't get mushroom clouds and destroy uh, far more than you would out of this. It is the need to put something into the whole orbit which says, I can use this as an opportunity weapon. There is an opportunity. I see it. We haven't got any other weapon. The alternative is using a nuclear weapon, which wouldn't work. And especially if you've got your own troops in an area, your own forces in an area. That's, that's, that's the most important thing. And it's also, it's not just, um, not just this idea of opportunity. You've got to be able to have anti-access, as it's called, and, and aerial denial. So that's a part of a system. Now, we, 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 I said earlier that it can reach a target anywhere in the world in an hour. That's uh, staggering. Well, it is staggering. It's more staggering when you think that hour is from when, when the guy says, let's go. So how far advanced is this missile? Uh, the missile was in, went in development about 12 years ago. Uh, it then stopped, and it's had to uh, answer a lot of subjects like, you know, where would you use it, how would you use it, why would you use it, etc., etc. It then goes to Congress... Congress has just brought it back into its discussion. And wh why would they do that now? Uh, because we've changed the view of how we operate now. We're talking about uh, third offset strategies, which means how can you use robots, electronics, etc., and how the other side uses it. And so you've got to change the mood of where you discuss what war might be. Now, that's not happening in the United Kingdom, how and that's why the United Kingdom is having to catch up on this. How much of this is about North Korea? Uh, I don't think any of it is about North Korea, but North Korea might be one of the examples where you'd say, as President Trump did in uh, last autumn in the United Nations, we can, sm we, you know, we can smash North Korea, we can destroy North Korea. And we all thought, no, 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 you can't do that because you can use a nuclear weapon. And that you know, has its, 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 its uh, repercussions. If you've got a weapon which is as powerful as this at these speeds and as capable of this and will land on a sixpence, 
then you've introduced a totally new system. You might be able to do it, and that's why it's important so to think of North Korea. What will it take to get this weapon into service exactly? It will take, take the president to be convinced that he needs this extra arm in his orbit, his options uh, for warfare. That then goes to the chiefs of staff, and he'll have got those options from the chiefs of staff in the first place. Then eventually, of course, it has to go to Congress. Now, Congress are the people who say, we will we will do the money for this and take it to the next development. But it is so close that it's not a long, drawn-out thing. It's all ready to go into production. What do you think having these kind of weapons will do to geopolitics? Uh, because not many people have them, it won't do very much. But what it does, it sets up a new sort of thought process between, let's say, China and Russia and the United States and that becomes extraordinarily important. Well, let's bring in the naval analyst and historian, Professor Eric Grove. Hello, Eric. Um, Hello there. Britain's in the middle of a political as well as a military debate on replacing the present four nuclear Trident missile submarines. Part of that debate has included the possibility of one of the four in future being conventionally armed, i.e. non-nuclear. Is this the way things are seeming to go? Well, we already have some flexibility in the Trident system. It's been known for some time, ever since the days when the term was pre-st- was uh, was uh, was sub-strategic, that in fact one or two of the Trident missiles in our submarines, they only carry eight at the moment, um, has a single warhead uh, with a very low l- low yield, perhaps only one with a, a variable yield. So we've had the option of having something less than the full 100, 100 kiloton yield. In a sense, it would be just extending the logic of this to have the conventional option. Um, we, we actually will have four spare tubes in our new Dreadnought-class submarines that only, go, only uh, are going to be carrying uh, eight nuclear ones, and you could conceivably have four more, perhaps with the conventional option. It would certainly increase increase your capabilities significantly. Uh, I suspect the Americans, just as they uh, just as they sell us rockets for the nuclear warheads, might sell us the whole system. But of course, mm-hmm. in our current uh, our current situation, the warheads, although they have a lot of American design in them, are actually made in Britain. And I doubt if we could actually make this warhead system ourselves. Christopher, the sceptics of this new missile system are saying, why, why would you need it? You could simply use a cruise missile off the coast of North, North Korea if you needed to hit North Korea. Uh, well, that's OK if you happen to be sitting off the coast of North Korea. The thing you've got with CTM uh, in that trident with the Trident launch rocket is distance. You can fire that thing from the South Atlantic and hit Korea, and you can fire it so quickly uh, from from order to do so to it arriving on target accurately that um, there is nothing else that you've got. When people talk about, say, using cruise missiles, cruise missiles do different things. They fly at a different height. They've they've got a, a different role. They fly from a different sub uh, a submarine. But if you have uh, locations for these uh, for the for these missiles in their submarines, you've in, you've revolutionised the way you think. And when you do that, you you start rethinking about warfare itself. This is a subject I'm sure we'll be coming back to. Gentlemen, stay with us. HMS Albion has left Plymouth for five months in the Mediterranean as newspaper speculation continues about the amphibious assault ship's future. There's a warning the government could be risking Britain's reputation as a reliable military partner by postponing decisions about cuts to the armed forces. Meanwhile, HMS Ocean is on its way back to its home port of Plymouth for the final time before decommissioning. Um, Eric Grove, the speculation about the future of Albion and Bulwark, plus a thousand Royal Marines is almost exclusively in newspapers, but somebody must be telling them something. What's the reality? 
Well, I think it's pretty clear that one of the options that has been suggested in the first stage of the of the of the so-called defence and, and security uh, capabilities review, or whatever its actual name is, uh, is in fact to make these significant cutbacks, both uh, getting rid of the two LPDs, the amphibious transport docks, Albion and Bulwark, and getting rid of up to two. two uh, 2,000 troops from the Royal Marines, uh, perhaps even combining the Royal Marines with the Paris, perish the thought, in some kind of in some kind of, uh, of joint mobile force. Uh, so yes, this is an option. I suspect it was leaked to try to create the opposition that we've seen from the House of Commons Defence Committee, from retired officers and so on. And I think it's far from certain it will actually take place. I get the impression the tide is running against that. Although the Navy, which is very strapped for personnel, wouldn't mind, in fact, if the numbers of Royal Marines came down, or some elements of it wouldn't mind, and so they could get more sailors to actually man ships. So, so the Marines are under attack on the one side from the Treasury, and perhaps arguably the Army, and from the other side from the Navy itself. But there's nothing particularly new in that. You, you say you suspect this may not happen. Is it possible it's just a smokescreen, and when we come to it, the Marines will be kept and the ships, but something else may actually be going, which was always meant to be going or secretly going all along? Well, something else may well have to go. I mean, I mean, there is talk of reducing the army uh, quite moderately significantly anyway. I mean, I wouldn't be too upset about that personally. Um, but I think that the Navy is very much at a, at, a, at a minimal level at the moment. I mean, all power to the House of Commons Defence Committee to, uh, to um, Julian Lewis and co, because they really have argued the case extremely strongly that if we do do away with our amphibious capabilities, our allies will not be able to rely on us the way they have done, particularly in Norway. I mean, I was giving evidence to the House of Commons Defence Committee recently on security in the high north. Without an amphibious capability which can come to the aid of the Norwegians in northern Norway, Norway Way, which is a neighbour of Russia, uh, would would I think consider itself to be in a far more dangerous position. So I think, yes, it is, as the, as the Defence Committee said, strategically illiterate to even consider getting rid of the LPDs. It's inter interesting so, here, so, isn't so it? The LSDs, I should say. It's, Sorry. So you should. Listen, it's, it's interesting here that we have seen, we've seen the past three years the, re, the army's been restructured, not just reorganised, restructured considerably under the present CGS. Uh, um, that's important. The RAF is going through an aircraft change and a personnel change and again a restructure. And then what happens? Along comes the first of two aircraft carriers for the Royal Navy and all that go with it. What we have now is a defence system that it, it, it's led by the maritime effect. What we believe should be the maritime threat in the future and how we defend it. And that means that the other two services, and maybe the Navy itself, will suffer because of this. Eric, um, HMS Albion uh, setting off this five months uh, deployment to the Mediterranean. It's taking a lead, it's the lead in the NATO task group, isn't it? Yes, it's taking the place of Ocean. Ocean has been the flagship of the Standing Maritime Force Two in the in the Mediterranean. Uh, in fact, I saw Ocean there when I was I was helping celebrate the the, the 700th anniversary of the Portuguese Navy. She represented the RN there, uh, and Albion is taking over from that. Uh, she's uh, she's got Marines on board. She'll be a very flexible asset, and she'll take part in a number of exercises. Mm. And having that capability to support our allies in the region is very important. It's amazing because we we see the Royal Navy ships doing these things. And you mentioned HMS Ocean, and, and she's on her final trip to back to uh, before decommissioning herself. We see them doing amazing jobs, and then that's it. Goodbye. 
That's right. I mean, Ocean, uh, uh, Ocean is, a, is a bit sad. I played a certain role in her being procured in the first place, actually, back in the 90s. Uh, uh, and she has been an extremely useful asset. The Brazilians, I think, are getting a bargain. According to Brazilian sources, I think it's something like £84 million. Pounds, uh, which, uh, and, uh, so, and, and they want a flat-top ship because they had a, a, an old French aircraft carrier. They tried to refit it and they found it was, it was so rotten they, <laughs> they have to scrap like it. it. So, like it was on day one. Well, perhaps, but they need a but they need a flat top ship. It's going to be called Minas Gerais, I think, which which actually was the name for what does uh, that mean? Uh, well, it's it's a, it's an area. It's a it's a district in Brazil. It's the name they gave to their first aircraft carrier that was in fact a British, a former British light fleet carrier. So it'd be a, quite an apt name. They're talking of taking the anti-aircraft gun off the bow. So perhaps they're thinking of operating short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft. Perhaps they might buy a few second-hand Harriers off the off the Americans and, and get some kind of carrier capability out of Brazilian it. Brazilian play football on it. Listen, um, <laughs> I think it's important to remember that the the. This whole defence debate is up in the air, led by the new defence secretary, who is determined Absolutely. not to be just paperclipped into a new defence review. He's actually saying it is time to rethink it. It is also time, he is saying, it is time, it is time to rethink who takes the decisions on this. And this is the biggest, if it goes through, it's the biggest thing to happen to the services in 40 years. Sit with Kate Still to come, the military nurses who fought for votes for women. And Trump wants a military parade. The British Army has joined the campaign to make 2018 the year of engineering. Today, more than 100 young people have been meeting military engineers in Minley in Surrey. Ali Gibson was there. Isabel and Daisy have just rolled out an infantry assault bridge to cross a river. They're from King's College in Surrey and are here to learn more about the engineering jobs in the forces. I'm really excited to continue the day. I'm really happy to be doing this. Yeah, we did a bit about cars. I thought that was really cool and how they could use the joystick to turn the camera and the crane. So that's great. I was quite interested by that. So maybe, yeah. This event at the Royal School of Military Engineering in Minley is the British Army's contribution to a much wider campaign. The government has declared 2018 the year of engineering and they want to see 20,000 more young people training or working as engineers in the coming years. The British Army is the country's largest single source of apprenticeship courses. But why is there a gap in engineers at present? Colonel Paul Johnson is the chief engineer of the army. There are shortages uh, in, in, across the sector uh, and the UK Army, uh, the British Army is no different to that. We've got plenty of people to, to do what we are required to do on a day-to-day -day basis, but we've got to make sure that that talent keeps coming through. The Army still has a way to go to meet its engineering targets, but they hope events like this will make any type of engineering job more accessible and appealing to young people. Ali Gibson, Forces News in Minley, Surrey. So, Christopher Lee, will it work? Well, I think they ought to take me back to wherever. I'm not, where is this Minley place? Uh, the, 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 this Minley place in Surrey. Uh, well, it would be in the Surrey Hills, probably. No, I mean, the sappers are in, in, in Chatham. They can make the connection with all three services because there's RF there. There's, there's certainly what's left of the neighbours there. Um, interesting here. Uh, armies going out looking for engineers. Yeah, It's not just the sappers are looking for engineers. They're actually going out looking for engineers anyway. The RAF, the latest, and it uh, shows up in the latest uh, 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 recruitment ads for the army. The RAF, with their new rec recruitment campaign, is almost entirely looking for techies. 
mm. looking for engineers. We this had is that the chair of the air staff, the chief of the air staff last yeah, week, didn't but we? As well, you've got to remember that this is this is future. This is future of the uh, of the services. It's all uh, based on the fact that the future is technology. The future of war is technology, and it's, mm. it, 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 you you don't get that right. You don't get airplanes that fly. You don't get you, you don't get vehicles that will roll properly in formation, and everybody know where they're going to turn up to go get refueled, etc. Professor Eric Grove, um, how do you think the armed forces can attract more skilled people? <laughs> Well, with some difficulty, I mean, the Navy hasn't been mentioned yet, but the Navy, of course, is very dependent on engineers and has been since since the start of the 19th century and the coming of steam. And and one hears that recruiting, particularly submarine engineers, very, very important. I mean, even at the lowest point in the recruiting cycle in recent years, submarine engineers were in demand. And so, yes, there is. A, it's very important that these people come in. But of course, if you operate in a submarine, the problem is that you can't use your social media. And actually, there is a cultural problem here of getting young people into the armed forces. They find some of the restrictions, having lived with social media, they find that some of the restrictions the armed forces force them into is not very attractive. So is and that it may past sound the trivial, then? but it's not. Do you think there needs to be a bit of a relaxation on social media then in the armed forces? There need to, it needs to be thought out, I think, because uh, because I, it does. It has been mentioned various times to me as a significant problem in getting young people into the armed forces. So what forces. would you do, Eric? Because, I mean, people, <laughs> I mean, there's security issues, aren't there? Very much so, yes. I mean, I mean, you could hardly have, hardly have a submarine with everybody transmitting on Twitter mm. uh, and so on. No, I mean, it is, it is a problem. You couldn't hear it anyway, Eric. Well, perhaps, but it adds to it. It adds an extra dimension. But yes, it is very, very important that the opportunities that the armed forces offer are put over. And also, it goes back to what we're talking about in defence reviews too. People won't join the armed forces if they think they don't have a secure career in front of them. And I think if we did increase defence expenditure, chance would be a fine thing, but it has been called for by serious mm. people. Then I think this would very much attract people because they would feel they do have a career in front of them. It's also the, you go to the careers, uh, go to careers people in schools. And they say, well, look, this is fine. We'll send them over to, the, over to the Royal Engineers or to the RAF. But the problem is, is BA Systems or whoever it is. They pay more. They're yeah. paying half as much again. And that's why, and, they, and you know, people go home at night. That's and right. I, and I think that there is a, that you, you actually have to say, why should people come to the army? Why should they come to the Navy, etc.? But and it does that is seem not to happening be, at the it moment. It does seem to be that the argument that's being put across by the armed forces about the community, the comradeship, the, uh, the support um, is not actually enough to attract people. The excitement, the adventure, all of those things, that message isn't getting across. And, there's, and it's not, it's not, you can't blame the services because they're not just doing it by themselves. In fact, they can, they can disapprove but it's been doing by agencies who've got a concept of the armed forces and so what you actually have to do is where we've discussed before you for the army you've got to go back to the idea of recruiting locally as or regionally as much as you can but the most important bit is that when people go to join the services or even think about it they've got to talk to people in uniform there's no point in just talking to people who come from an ad agency and they think they know how to do it there is something about actually eyeballing something from the services and actually see that you're talking to a, probably, it sounds terrible, but you're talking to a different person and you really ought to make, I'd, I'd actually be, want to be one of those. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Professor Eric Grove, thank you for your time today.
It's 100 years ago this week since the Representation of the People Act was passed, giving some women the right to vote. But how did the hard-fought campaign by the suffragette movement affect women in the military during the First World War? I spoke to Elizabeth Shipton, the author of Female Tommies, the Frontline Women of the First World War, who worked on the Royal British Legion's 100 Years of Women in the Armed Forces campaign. To the war, we had two camps, if you like, of suffrage activists. So we had the suffragettes, which we hear quite a lot about, the very demonstrative um, women who threw stones through windows, hunger strikes. And then we also had the more conservative group, the suffragists. And certainly in the years leading up to the First World War, there was gathered, uh, gathering momentum. Um, women were looking for more opportunities for equality. They were looking at educational opportunities and the right to vote. And certainly the suffragettes were the most passionate and they concentrated on the vote. However, when the First World War started, there was a general consensus amongst all activist groups that they would down tools and concentrate on the war effort. But this didn't stop um, groups of women using uh, the situation to their advantage to uh, push forward um, the women's right to equality. Um, we have a couple of really amazing examples. We've got two women doctors um, who, as qualified medics, it was very unusual at the time, um, Flora Murray and Dr. Louisa Garrett Anderson, and they were both suffragettes. Uh, Louisa Garrett Anderson had been imprisoned in, the, in Holloway Prison, and Flora Murray had administered first aid and even tended Emmeline Pankhurst during the hunger strike period. And they were resolute that they were not going to lose the opportunity to demonstrate what women could do. So in um, August 1914, they set up a women's only hospital called the Women's Hospital Corps. And they uh, got this invitation from the French Red Cross and they went to Paris uh, the following month and set up a hospital in a disused hotel. And they actually set up the first women-run military hospital. Uh, this was followed by a second one outside of Boulogne. And in 1915, they impressed the medical community so much that the Royal Army Medical Corps asked them to set up a military hospital in London. So they packed up sticks and diverted all their resources to London and established this hospital, which they ran, as I said, entirely with female staff right the way through to 1919. How much of a difference mm. did the First World War make to the suffragettes and the suffragists' cause? I mean, if it hadn't had happened, would it have taken longer for women to get the vote, for example? Uh, there is this argument that um, certainly the, the suffragette movement was gathering pace. Um, their, their problem with the general movement was the, the core, the suffragists were trying to go through legal reform and they were trying to argue their case in um, Parliament and it was taking an awfully long time. And so when the Pankhurst uh, started up the um, the WFPU, the Women's Social Political Union, in 1903, they were going to pick up the pace and they really um, drove home the point, as I said, with demonstrations, activism, um, risking imprisonment. And it was 
it is argued that given another four years, had the First World War not happened, they might have been in a stronger position to argue for a better uh, deal of enfranchisement and that uh, they could have potentially lowered the voting age. Maybe the stipulations over how much property a woman had to own in order to have the right to vote might have been easier on them. So uh, but that obviously is impossible to tell. Uh, what the women carried on doing was they demonstrated their willingness to serve the country. And one of the pre-war arguments about the women's entitlement to vote was that they didn't qualify for citizenship because unlike men, they weren't fighting for their country. They weren't laying down their lives. Uh, women were very much seen as life givers, not life takers. So uh, during the war, uh, you have this amazing volunteer movement, these women who are willing to go to France, to go to Serbia, Russia, and serve on behalf of their country and risk their lives. So um, you can say that, yes, they were, it could have gone in a different direction had the war not happened, but certainly the women didn't lose the opportunity to show that they could act on behalf of their country and that they were prepared to fight for their country if necessary. That was Elizabeth Shipton. Christopher, what do you think? Do you like a bit of Daft Punk? I'm a Sid Vicious. <laughs> Sid Vicious, I think, more appropriate. How, how, how did I know? Uh, that's a little reminder of last July's Bastille Day celebrations in Paris, where President Donald Trump sat alongside a smiling President Emmanuel Macron watching the military parade. Now, it seems, the US President was so inspired... He wants one too. Well, let's talk to Giles Gibson from Feature Story News in Washington. Hello, Giles. Uh, this is Trump's idea about what about it. Uh, what does America think? Well, I think America is a country where respecting the armed forces, respecting the military, is taken extremely, extremely seriously. Um, so I think there will be a, a large section of the American public who would be very happy to see this sort of uh, Bastille Day style parade in, in Washington DC, the US capital, where I'm talking to you from. But I think on the other side of the coin, uh, there is also a large section of the American public who are very skeptical about this idea. Uh, I saw a tweet by the Washington DC City Council, which I should say is a very heavily Democrat uh, council. They tweeted out uh, simply tanks, but no tanks. So that gives you an idea <laughs> Uh, that there is some scepticism here in, in the US about uh, whether a military-style parade is the right way uh, to go about celebrating the US military. Indeed, and, and I understand some veterans associations are accusing uh, Donald Trump of playing politics with the military. That's right. I mean, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the White House press secretary, she was grilled about this uh, proposal on Wednesday here in, in Washington. Uh, and she said that Donald Trump, the US president, has simply asked the Pentagon to explore ideas about this. She was very uh, keen to stress that this idea was very much still in its early stages. Uh, and she called it essentially a celebration 
for all Americans. I think if you talk to Donald Trump's opponents uh, amongst the Democrats and some independents in this country, then I think they would say that this is not about celebrating the US military. This is not a celebration for all Americans, that this is really about uh, Donald Trump's ego. Mm, Christopher, how do you see this? Well, I mean, I just, I just find it interesting that he would, he would say that sort of thing. Then I think to myself, of course, he's the only president the only president is likely to say something like this. You think where you get these parades and what they mean. You know, you get them in Russia, you get them in China, you get them in North Korea. You get them in Paris. You get them in China, but all for a, but Paris is a different reason. Paris is something about the about a nation, the way and they, uh, the, what happened to a nation, and it's very important. Um, but do we know actually how Donald Trump would actually use this parade? Well, I mean, two things immediately. I was I saw the 2003 parade, which was for the so-called end of the Iraqi war, and they had a, in had. A, Aeroplanes going down Fifth Avenue and ticker tape. Now you can't do ticker tape, I think, Giles, in 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 Washington because no, none of the buildings are tall enough for it. And it is a New York thing. It is a bit of carnival, military carnival. And I think that maybe for that reason, it may not happen. Giles, what do you think the chances are of it happening? Well, as, as I said, the White House is saying that this is still in its very early stages, but uh, the Washington Post have been reporting that this is essentially a directive that has come down from the Commander-in-Chief, from US President Donald Trump to his military to explore ideas about this. So I think some sort of a parade uh, is pretty likely and, and is certainly on the cards for later in the year. Uh, I think the big question is really just what it's going to look like. Uh, I was looking uh, sort of back in time and there has been a similar style parade not that long ago. There was one back in uh, 1991 under President George H.W. Bush uh, celebrating victory in the Gulf War. But I think very much it's still a very open question about exactly what we're going to see. Are we going to see tanks rolling down the streets of the, the US Capitol? Maybe right. a CTM missile. All right. On that note, we shall leave it for today. Giles Gibson from Future Story News. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the show as a podcast. I'm Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening. Speak to you at the same time next week. Bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.